This morning, we are starting a new series called Plan B. And I have to tell you, uh, I am really excited about this series because I have been wanting to to do this um, here for a long time because the idea kind of stems from a book that is one of the books that's on my must-read list. If you've heard me speak before, you know I have this very short list of must-read books and most of them are kind of short and most of them are easy to read and you won't find any deep theological things on that list. Um, But this was a book that I uh, came across um, quite a few years ago called Plan B. And uh, the subtitle is uh, What to Do When God Doesn't Show Up Like You Expect Him To. And the book's written by Pete Wilson, and um, he's a pastor down in in Tennessee, um, in the Nashville area. And I've probably given away probably 50 copies of that book um, to people and it's been kind of an amazing thing to, to hear from those people um, how that book spoke to them in a lot of ways. And to hear how they passed it on to somebody else who then passed it on to somebody else. And, and it would be great to know how many of those 50 books have been read over and over again by people uh, who needed to, to hear the message. And so I, I'm, I tell you, I am excited to be able to talk to you this morning a little bit about Plan B. Because uh, one thing that I want you to understand is that each and every one of us, at some point in time in our life, are going to experience a Plan B moment. And none of us uh, really plan on having bad things happen to us. You don't grow up, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that none of you have said that when you grew up you, you hoped or dreamed about getting cancer when you're 25 years old. And most of you probably didn't say, well, I really hope that, that I grew up, that I grow up and that I, I, I can't have a family. And most of you probably said, Nothing about the fact that you hope that you grow up someday and uh, get married and then go through a terrible divorce. Because we just don't think about those kind of things when we're dreaming and hoping and wanting things for life. And the interesting thing, though, is that plan B's happen. And yours may not be as dramatic as somebody else's, but I can tell you that it's kind of like when you have surgery, and they say it's a minor surgery, but if it's on you, there's no such thing as a minor surgery. It's kind of the same way with plan Bs. When it's your plan B, and you're living through it, it's a big deal. And it's tough. And so this morning, I I want us to, to be able to look at those things, because honestly, what really makes it hard is that a lot of times we look around and we see other people who are having their dreams come true. You see people that, if, if you're one of those people that, that just wants so bad to have a child, and you can't, 
And yet you see people that don't even want children cranking them out every nine months like they're a baby factory. That is tough. Or maybe you're the person who, who is just has always dreamed about this certain career and you want to have this, this certain job and you've dreamt about it and you've worked hard for it and it comes time for the promotion to that dream job that you've always wanted and the guy who is the laziest one in the office gets the promotion instead of you. That sucks. And you're lost in that sea of cubicles and it seems like it's going to be for the rest of your life. And maybe even a tougher one is that you have that child and you have dreams for that child and the child dies. Those are moments of plan B that are tough. And those are moments that that we can see God working But when we're in those moments, sometimes that is so hard to see. And I love the idea that we have to present this series to you. Because we're not going to go through this series and give you this 12-step plan on how to avoid plan B's. Or, or we're not going to give you a guaranteed survival kit on how to get through a plan B. But instead, we've chosen to simply give you some honest and transparent stories of people who have lived it, people that you may know, people that worship here each week. And we're going to be taking a look at those stories. And I just want to encourage you that if you know somebody that's in that moment right now where they're struggling with a plan B, that you get them here. Because it is amazing what takes place in a person's mind when they realize that they're not the only ones in a plan B. And I want to challenge you, if you're not in a plan B and you're one of those note takers, I want to challenge you to listen for those little golden nuggets of life wisdom that only can be spoken by somebody who's walked through the fire. Because those are the nuggets that you can carry around in your pocket that will get you through those plan B's. And you'll hear those things in the stories in the weeks to come. And so I want to just encourage you to to be here and uh, understand that, that we don't have all the answers. I wish that we did. Because, man, if we did, we'd just advertise it. We'd pack this place out, you know, and we'd be able to write books and sell them for fifty nine ninety five a piece. And, and uh, we'd just be doing amazing things and be on television and everybody would be saying, wow, look at that. But that's not the case. We don't have the answers. But you'll find truth in these stories that you're about to hear. And one of the stories that we want to share with you is that... Uh, is the one that I got to live through. <laughs> and some of you are here a couple of years ago um, and heard when Aaron asked me if I would share a part of my life story. And, I, and I've got to tell you, this is not a part of my life 
that I really like to talk about. Um, if you set me down and get me started talking about certain things in my life, there are stories that I love to tell. I, I, I do. There are some of my, my favorite stories to tell, and the guys in my life group can testify to that. Sometimes we get started and we just go on and on. I love to tell those stories, but this, this is not one of them. Because uh, my world just kind of got turned upside down here uh, about 14 years ago, 15 years ago, with a phone call. And the phone call was from an anonymous person uh, who called me at work and said, Hey, I, I just thought you might want to know that your wife has been parking her car in front of my house and getting in a car, a little blue car, with another guy. And of course, first thing I did was start racking my brain trying to figure out who do I know that drives a little blue car. And I, and I came up blank. And a good friend of my wife about it, and it was not a, a pleasant thing, and it wasn't good, and it, it got ugly, and um, it was true. And so I, I called uh, my minister and talk to him about it. And there was silence on the other end of the phone, and then he said, well, um, Mike, I'm the guy driving the little blue car. Now, to really understand the, the impact of, uh, of that statement was the fact that this is the church that I grew up in, I had been an elder in that church for years. My brother was an elder. My brother-in-law was an elder. My whole family attended that church. And there were so many people in that church that I, I just loved. And the guy that was the minister, I'd actually went to college with. And, and we had ran around up and down the halls in our underwear together. And there's a certain bond that takes place when you do that. I understand that. And we were what I would consider close friends. And I really thought, I've got to fix this. And I was determined that I was going to fix this. And so him and I sat down and we talked about it. And it was tough and, and you know, it's hard to sit across from somebody that you just like to choke out. Uh, but we talked through it. And, you know, he promised me, he said, no, you know, you don't understand it. It's not like what you think. Um, it, it, it was just, you know, we were just talking and, and all these things and, and he promised me that that would never happen again. But it did. And about a year later, I thought, you know, I've got to do this like the Bible says I should. And so I had talked to him by myself, but a year later I find out it's still going on. So I went to our associate pastor and I s talked to him about it. And we went and confronted him again. And again... Lots of tears, lots of repentance, lots of promises. And another year went by. And then we found some emails that were talking about starting this life together. And um, it was just crazy to think about that it was still happening. 
And I tell you what, I had his kids in youth group, and I loved his kids like they were my own. And I really kept thinking, I can fix this. But yet, I took it to the elders. And when I took it to the elders, things got ugly real fast. And it blew up into this ugly mess that divided the church. And some people believed me and some people believed him. And it just grew into this ugly mess to where I finally just, just had to leave. And walk away from this church that I, that I really loved. That my family was a part of. And it left me in a very dark place. And I had already died over the course of those years. Because I suspected that things were still going on through that course of time. And yet every Sunday I would put on my happy face. And I would go to church. I, I suffered through two weddings watching this guy talk about what marriage should be for a couple. And I got to tell you, it crushed my soul to the point that I was just in a very dark place. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, is I was so focused on fixing it that I, I, I thought about this the other day when I was thinking about this whole story again. I can't remember a single time that I even prayed about it. I, I, I never even gave it the idea that, that I could take it to God and ask him to help me. And that is such a sad thing when I think about it right now. But yet it was so true because it was, it was all about me fixing it. It was all about me being in control. But you know, plan B's are really good at exposing the fact that we are not in control. And that's a tough thing for me to accept because I like to control things. I like to uh, think that if I work hard enough at something, if I study it long enough and hard enough, I can figure it out myself. And I can make this happen. That's what drives me. That's what helps me to, to push through things. But plan B moments remind us that no matter how smart we are, no matter how rich we are, no matter how powerful we are, we are not in control. And you know, Christians love to quote Jeremiah 29 11 that says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And I love that verse too. But don't read everything into it that you think is there. Because it doesn't say that the journey is all going to be good. But the outcome can be. And sometimes when you're in the middle of a plan B, that promise looks false because your life looks like a disaster. It looks like the pieces 
have all fallen apart. And yet God's good, and God is working, and he hasn't abandoned it. But when I was in the middle of all that, and I realized that I couldn't fix it, my world just simply came crashing down, and I felt alone. Everybody that I had always leaned on before in that church, I couldn't go to, because it was such a mess. And they were such a mess. And my family was all part of that as well. And I had to feel, I felt like I couldn't talk to my kids about it, even though I had adult kids, because I felt like I had to be strong for them. And I felt all alone. And divorce is something that leads to isolation. Friends disappear. Friends that you've known for a long time are gone. Extended family relationships just kind of become awkward. And homes are divided and your kids are gone for weeks at a time. And it's lonely. And it's dark. And it's a tough place to be. And it's in those dark, lonely places that Satan does some of his best work. And you see it all the time when people get divorced because moms become bar hoppers and guys become bed hoppers. And they see that freedom that they think they have as something great. And, and, and so they chase after those things that they think will make them happy. But it's only for that moment. And then they're home and they're feeling lonely and isolated. And the cycle goes over and over and over again. So let me just interject this. If you have somebody that's going through that right now, step into their lives. Don't wait for them to ask you for help. You don't have to have the answer. You don't have to fix it for them. But you can be there because two people take away that loneliness, that isolation. And just your presence can be a real help because there's that separation from family and the, the separation from friends, and it becomes a separation from life for many people and a separation from God. And it's just you in, in that darkness. I think the darkest moment in my life came for me um, the night before my wife was going to move out. And it was just kind of surreal as I was laying upstairs in bed and she was downstairs in another bedroom. It was just kind of surreal to think that the next day there was going to be this whole group of people that were going to come pick up a bunch of pieces of my life and haul them away. And I was still thinking, how can I fix this? How can I stop this from happening? <laughs> and weird things happen when you're in that moment 
of reflection. <laughs> and the weird thing for me was that I wrote a poem. <laughs> and if you know me, you know that's weird because my idea of good poetry is Dr. Seuss. I mean, really, seriously. And so I sat down and I took out a piece of paper and I wrote this poem. Better get your tissues out. How do you say goodbye to 25 years of your life? How do you say goodbye to the woman you love your wife? How do you say goodbye to all your hopes and dreams? How do you say goodbye with tears that flow like mountain streams? Tell me, how do you say goodbye when your heart just won't let go? How do you say goodbye when all you really want to say is hello? Now that right there is a country western song, if I've ever heard one. And so if you know somebody that's a struggling artist and wants to hit the top ten charts, that's it. They can use it because you can just almost hear that, can't you? You How do you say goodbye? (laughs) I mean, it's there, right? It's there. It's a top ten hit, I tell you. And it's it's kind of embarrassing for me to share that with you. But that's what I was feeling at the time. How do I say goodbye? So I, I got up. I took that piece of paper and I went downstairs to her room and I walked in and I read it to her and I laid it down next to her. Went back upstairs, got up the next morning, went to work and I was was in that sleepless kind of haze if you've ever been there where you just haven't got any sleep and you just can't hardly function. And I went to work that day. And when I came home, it was just kind of a, things got real for me real quick because as I stepped into the house, the house that we had built together was this house that had kind of a wide open floor plan. And when you stepped inside the front door, you could see pretty much all the parts of the main floor. And as I stepped there, I could see these holes where pieces of my life had disappeared, where there was this piece of furniture that we had bought in Wyoming. There was this piece of furniture that had been a grandparent that was gone now. There were family pictures gone off the wall. And I stood there and I kind of looked around. It was just, just really seemed barren and, and empty and... I looked over in the corner, kind of around the corner, into that empty bedroom that was where everything had been taken out of, and there was a piece of paper laying there on the floor. And I walked over and I picked it up, and sure enough, it was that poem. And that was a deep, deep wound to my heart at that point. And I picked up that piece of paper, and I went upstairs, and I flopped down on my bed, And I cried so hard. It was such a weird experience because it was almost like I was standing there watching this grown man sob and heave in mourning. It was almost like I was watching this whole thing. It was really a strange thing. But that there was a point where that that turned to anger, and I suddenly rolled over and I shook my fist at God and I said, How am I supposed to let go? 
you should have done something. And I threw the piece of paper down, I rolled over and cried and went to sleep. And I got up the next morning and (laughs) it was still dark outside, I don't even know what time it was. And I kind of stumbled downstairs, got a drink of water, and sat down at the kitchen table there where I had my Bible laying there. And I pulled it over, and I just said, God, I need something right now. I need some kind of encouragement, something that can get me through today. And I opened up my Bible, and it went to the crucifixion story, (laughs) which is kind of funny because that's not really encouraging. (laughs) But as I I, I decided, okay, I am going to read this. And as I read it, there was such a clear voice from God that asked me a question. How do you say goodbye your one and only son. And that struck me in that moment in an amazing way because the crucifixion was never so real for me than in that moment. Because hope came into my life. Because God understood what it was like to hurt, to suffer. And that changed. That was a a fundamental change for me in that moment when I understood that God was there with me And he was willing to give me a hope that circumstances could not change. So what do you do when your marriage falls apart and you find yourself in the middle of a plan B? Probably one of the smartest things I did was I realized the fact that I was hurting, that I was dumb, and that if I didn't make myself accountable to somebody, I would probably do a lot of stupid things. And so that's what I, that was the first thing that I did was I, I, I called a couple guys. One of them was my former junior high youth sponsor. Now, if anybody knows how dumb a person can be, it's a junior high youth sponsor because they see stupidity every day. And that was, that was the perfect person because he spoke into my life in such a great way. And the first thing he told me to do was, you need to get comfortable with being alone. You need to get comfortable with your aloneness. And I had been married for so long, I tell you what, that was such an amazing thing because it took so long for me to get from we to me. Because everything I talked about was we this or we that or we this. And I had to get to the point where I was comfortable 
with being me. And so we went through and started meeting every, every week, and, and I finally got to that point where I was comfortable. And he told me, he said, okay, Mike, he said, I think you're at the point where you are comfortable, and you have my permission to have your first date. <laughs> now, that is a scary thing when you're 40-something and have been married for 25 years. The idea of dating is a weird thing. And what his stipulation was, you have to date 10 people before you can get even think about getting serious with someone. Now, for some of you college guys, that might be a weekend. But for, for a 40-something-year-old whose only friends are married people, 10 people is a lot, and he knew that. And that was why he said 10 people. And so I began that process, and I, I could tell you some hilarious stories about some of those first dates. But... <laughs> It was interesting, and I'm about halfway through that process, and I'm going to church, and I look up in the choir, and I see this face, and it was one of those moments where it's almost like the light comes on and the angels go, ta-da, like that, just like on television. It was just in my mind, though, but I see this person. And I can't explain it, but i got to tell you something. I knew for a fact that that was the person that God had for me to be married to. The only problem was I didn't know who she was. I didn't know if she was single, <laughs> which is kind of important. <laughs> and so I began this. Now, you, know, you would think that I understood a lesson from God that I needed not to try and fix everything myself, right? I should be at that point after going through all this? No. So I began this process of, first of all, I need to get through my other dates to get to 10. And secondly, I needed to find out who this person was, since I'm going to marry him. thought that was kind of important. So I began that investigative process. Now, I like to use the word investigative process because that sounds a lot better than stalking. You know, but that's really what it was. Everything about going to church involved not about worshiping God, I hate to say that, but it involved about finding out about this person. And I used to let, the choir would come down after they would sing, and, and so I used to leave open seats beside me, hoping that, because it was a full church, and hoping that she would come sit, and she never did. All the old ladies would come sit beside me, and it always failed. And one time, she did come really close, but she sat behind me. And uh, so, anyway, we're going to go through this whole process. And in the meantime, I'm checking off, you know, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, you know, getting them all done so then I could turn in my 10-date punch card to, to Brian and uh, say, okay, I'm done, you know. And so then the moment comes. Now, you got to understand, this is the person that I am going to marry. I've done my investigation. I know her name. I know where she lives. I know a little bit about her. And so I finally get up the nerve, dial her up. This is the old dial phones. Anyway, I, I call and she says no. Yeah, that's right. That's sad. She says no. And you got to understand, I, I, I see it now as God just reminded me, Mike, this is not up to you. 
But at the time, that was a gut punch. I got to tell you, that was a major gut punch. And it caused me to regroup. But you know, something changed at that point. Because instead of praying that God would somehow put Allison in the same room with me, I simply began to pray for her. And I never will forget that first prayer because it was like, okay, God, I don't know anything about this person. Um, I know her name, and uh, I know where she lives, um, but that's about it. And I know she's single, so it's okay. Uh, but, But God, you know her needs. And so I just want to pray for her knowing that you know what to insert into those needs. And so I began to pray for her. And it was a while later, several months later, that I'm in the checkout line uh, at the grocery store in Beatrice, and she's in the other checkout line. And the funny thing was, she never went to that grocery store, so it was kind of cool. And uh, so anyway, so I go out to my car, and I wait for her to come out. Again, I'm back to stalking, okay? And uh, I'm doing my investigation, I mean. And, and so I wait for her to come out, and I slowly cruise by. Oh, hey, how you doing? And uh, so we get to talking. I mean, it was so sad. But we get to talking, and um, we agree to meet. And uh, so, a, I don't know when it was, a few days later, she, she actually came out to the house out in the country. We went for a walk, sat on my deck, and it was an amazing thing because it, we sat there and talked for hour upon hour, hour, hours. Time passed. It was like we were old friends. And then we got married. And it was a neat thing. But I have to tell you, I've often wondered, what if Allison hadn't have said yes? And the band guys, can, you guys can come on up. Because I've wondered that a lot. And probably more so, I was so wrapped up with the fact that she did say yes that I didn't really think about that for a long time. But I tell you, I have friends who are in that situation um, that are still waiting, that waited longer than me. And I have friends who still are just crushed by their broken relationships and have seen their family just devastated to the point where uh, some of the kids just won't even talk to them. And there hasn't been any healing. And I look at those plan Bs and I go, what, what is different? And I wish I had a good answer for you, but I don't. And, and if you're one of those people and you hearing the ending to my story just wants to make you puke, I feel for you. And I do feel blessed that God brought me to that point. And I hurt for you because I know how deep that hurt goes. But I have to tell you, there is a verse in Lamentations that 
that I grabbed onto and I held onto and clung to through the whole thing. Lamentations 3, 19 through 24, it says, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, people and things will always fail you. But hope placed in God is real. His presence is real. And when you're in those plan B moments, his arms are real. And just just reading those words chokes me up. Because they calmed the storm in my life. And I praise God for that. Because he changed me. And he can change you. Let's pray. God, it's a, it's a heavy thing to talk about these moments in life when it hurts. But yet you're there and your presence is always beside us and your mercies never end. And God, I know that there are people in this place right now that are walking through those plan B's and they are hurting as well. And I pray that they will hear your word and hear the hope that you provide. And God, this next song that we're going to sing is such an amazing testimony to what you can do in people's lives. And while there's tears in my eyes right now, there's joy in my heart because of you because of what you did for me. And I praise you for it. Change hearts right now, God. Soften the hardness that's there. Break through in people's lives now. Pray this on your son's name. Amen.